It's always a pleasure to stand in the pulpit in Bert's absence. He is in uh, Tennessee visiting his grandchild, and he'll be back in about three weeks. Also, let's keep him in prayer uh, for Traveling Mercies and Mary as well, and also the nation of Israel. I'm sure we're all hearing on the news of things that are going on there. Uh, just keep them lifted up in your prayers. Psalm 40, verse 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. Everything written in the scriptures is about the Messiah. Yeshua even said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Do not think that I shall accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. In fact, on the, while on the road to Emmaus, Yeshua told the two disciples he was walking with, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Everything in the scriptures testify of Yeshua. Paul even wrote, Therefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Messiah. Everything in the law is to bring us to Messiah. John wrote in his gospel, Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So everything written in the gospels are so we may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and have life in his name. John also wrote, and there are many other things that Yeshua did of which, if were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books written. The Bible isn't intended to be an exhaustive history of mankind, let alone the entire universe. It's about Yeshua and his ministry. As a result, it's not uncommon to see gaps in historical narratives or notice information that appears to be missing from a story. If some information is not there, because it's not relevant to Yeshua or his ministry. This week's Torah portion is Barashit. And to illustrate the massive gaps in history, let's look at the genealogy of Adam in the last chapter of this Torah portion, chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day God created man, he made man in his likeness, and he created them, male and female. He blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam he lived were 930 years and he died. Now I'm going to paraphrase the next couple of verses here. Seth begot Enosh, 
He lived a long time, had sons and daughters, and died. Enosh begot Canaan. He lived a long time, he had sons and daughters, and died. Canaan begot Mahalalel. He lived a long time, he had sons and daughters, and he died. Mahalalel begot Jared. He lived a long time, he had sons and daughters, and he died. Jared begot Enoch. He lived a long time, had sons and daughters, and he died. Enoch begot Methuselah. Enoch lived a long time, had sons and daughters. He walked with God, and God took him. Methuselah begot Lamech. He lived a long time, had sons and daughters, and he died. Lamech begot Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord cursed. Then he lived a long time, had sons and daughters, and died. And Noah was 500 years old, and he begot Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. The concluding chapter of this Torah portion zips through roughly 1,500 years of history and 10 generations of the patriarchs, 11 if you include Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And aside from the story of Adam in one sentence mentioning Enoch walked with God and being taken by him, the only thing we know about the patriarchs are their names. But that's all we need to know. The English translation of their names in order are as follows. Adam means man. Seth, appointed. Enish, mortal. Kenan, sorrow. Mahalalel, the blessed God. Jared, shall come down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech, the despairing. Noah, rest. So when strung together in English, these read, man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Again, Yeshua said the scriptures testify of him and that Moses wrote about him. We can see the gospel just in the names in these 1,500 years that occurred. No other history given except what's important. They testify of Yeshua. Now that we know where this Torah portion ends, let's go and start in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know the word beginning is baran. It means to create from nothing. It's where we get the Torah portion's name, barashit. I remember the first time that Bert had talked about in this Torah portion the doctrine of tzintzun, or the doctrine of limitations where God, of course, filled all in all. There was no place for the universe, and God opened up an expanse of where he had been, and in that expanse is where he was going to create the universe. And when he removed himself, there was tovu vahovu vahoshek, confusion, void, and darkness. Everything that, that God wasn't, that's where he created that to be. And I remember thinking that that, that resonated with me, and I thought that it, the scriptures don't say that. But it just sounded like that that works in my mind for that to appear. You, you remove something that's there to create something that wasn't there before. Well, I looked up words in the scriptures. I looked up the word bara and looked for other places where that's found. It's found two places in Joshua chapter 17. Joshua's leading the children of Israel into the promised land, and he tells the children of Ephraim and Manasseh, Go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants. Although it's wooded, 
you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent will be yours. Well, the word for clear a place and cut it down is bara. They created a void where there had once been a force. And I thought, well, that sounds an awful like scene soon. You're taking something that was there and you're removing it out and creating a place for something else to be there. I thought, well, that, that sounds exactly like that soon soon. And it's to create from nothing. Verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Of course, we know the rest. First day, God divided the light from the darkness. The second day, God created the heavens. The third day, God created the earth and all plants. The fourth day, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Fifth day, he created the sea and all the birds. And on the sixth day, he created every animal and he created man in his own image. This takes us to chapter 2. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all of his work of creation which he had made. This creation narrative is mentioned repeatedly throughout the scriptures. But one stands out in particular, and that's John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Paul echoes this sentiment in Colossians 1. For by him, Yeshua, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. The reason I point out that God created everything through Yeshua, literally everything in the universe, is to point out There is no other God. There's not room anywhere in the universe for any other being that could call itself God. Doesn't exist, can't exist. There's not a place for it. However, there are many things in the universe that we can't explain. We don't know. But as I said before, the Bible isn't intended to be an exhaustive history of mankind, let alone the universe. It's about Yeshua and his ministry. I know people who say they've experienced things that they can't explain. I understand that. I agree. Things that they refer to as the paranormal. Voices, visions, apparitions, etc. Well, whatever it is out there, they fall into basically two categories. Those mentioned in the Bible and those that aren't. Of those mentioned in the Bible, these include things such as angels, devils, demons, seraphim, cherubim, The sons of God who married the daughters of men, giants, Nephilim, etc. Those things not mentioned in the Bible are things like Greek and Roman gods, which I suppose for the most part would fall under idols, which could technically be mentioned in the Bible. Things like extraterrestrials, vampires, werewolves, and a whole host of other fictitious creatures. 
Well, whether they're mentioned in the Bible or not, all of these fall into two categories. Those that testify of Yeshua and those that don't. But of all the things we can or cannot explain, there are three things we know for certain about every living thing in this universe. One, Yeshua created it. John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16. Two, its knee will bend and its tongue will confess that Yeshua is Lord. Philippians 2.10 and 11. And three, it will spend eternity either in the presence of God or separated from God based on its faith in Yeshua. John 3, 16 through 21 and verse 36. Back to the narrative of Genesis. Verse 8. And the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first was Pishon, and it's the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah. Let me ask you this. How many cities were in the land of Havilah? None. How many people? None. Verse 13, the name of the second river was Gihon. It's the one that goes around the whole land of Cush, also known as Ethiopia. How many cities were in this land? None. How many people? None. Verse 14, the name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes eastward toward the land of Assyria. Again, how many cities were in the land of Assyria at this time? None. How many people? None. Keep this in mind when we get to the land of Nod. Verse 15. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Well, here's another clue that the lands that I just mentioned were uninhabited. The man was alone. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he'd call them. And whatever Adam called him, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. There wasn't anything on this planet comparable to Adam. Verse 21, And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man and said, Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken from Ish, man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, in Genesis 3, 
verses 1 through 5, we read that the serpent deceived Eve into eating the fruit of the knowledge of good of evil. Then in beginning in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. From the text, it appears that Eve was deceived, but Adam seems to have willingly taken from the fruit to share in her fate. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul writes, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Why didn't Adam just ask God to take another rib before he ate and say, Won't you make a woman out of this one and I'll have a, a different wife and just let Eve go on? Well, I can't help seeing a parallel between Adam and his love for his bride and Yeshua and his love for his bride. Remember, Adam, even after Eve took that first bite, Adam was living in a state of eternal, immortal, perfect unity with God. But he was willing to give that up to suffer the same fate as his bride. Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah also loved the church and gave himself for her. He also wrote Messiah Yeshua, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Back to Genesis 3, 7 through 10. Well, the Lord discovers the transgressions of Adam and Eve. And as a loving father, he gives them a chance to explain themselves. And he asks, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you shouldn't eat? The Lord gives Adam and Eve a chance to confess their sin. When my children were young and did something that they shouldn't, Kim and I would ask them three questions. We'd give them a chance to confess their sin. We would ask, what did you do wrong? Why is that wrong? What will you do the next time? Well, by asking, what did you do wrong, which is what the Lord just did here, this encourages them to confess their sin of what they did wrong. Why is that wrong? Well, this requires them to think of the consequence of their actions and how it may affect others. And what will you do the next time? Well, this encourages them to work out in their minds what they will do the next time when they're tempted this way. It encourages them to repent of the behavior that they just did, and it gives them hope that they will have a second chance. This is what the Lord does for Adam and Eve. He didn't kill them right there on the spot. Back to Genesis 3.12. Then the man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. And I ate. Adam confessed his sin. Then the Lord gave Eve a chance to confess hers, and he asks, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve confessed her sin. Verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed. More than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, The Lord didn't give the serpent an opportunity to confess his sin. Similar to a person who 
causes a child to stumble. They have a millstone tied around their neck and they're cast into the sea. Eve was as innocent as a child. And the serpent deceived her and caused her to stumble. The Lord didn't give him an opportunity to repent. He knew what he was doing. Verse 15, he tells the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first messianic promise. Yeshua will crush the head of the serpent. Verse 16, and he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded to the voice of your wife and have eaten the fruit of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Notice, Adam is not cursed as the ground and the serpent were. This allows Adam to be in the line of the Messiah. He is not a cursed seed. Also due to the curse, the DNA of all plants and animals were corrupted. Before the fall, everything that the Lord was made was, quote, very good. As soon as the Lord, and soon the Lord will restore all things as they were when once again, quote, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Isaiah 65, 25. And there shall be no more death. Revelation 21, 4. However, after Adam sinned, sin and death entered the world and a profound physiological change occurred in the creation. Through its corrupt DNA, plants now grow thorns and thistles. Some animals that once ate straw like an ox need more protein to survive than the plants can provide. Everything in the creation was affected. It has suffered and continues to suffer. When the Lord originally gave man every green herb, every green herb was still very good. However, because of the fall, Many green herbs have become injurious to man. Even before the Lord permitted man to kill any beast or eat its flesh, animals had already begun living off death and decay. Some animals became carnivorous as a result of the fall, living off the flesh of other animals. Others became scavengers, living off the waste, death, and decay of other animals, such as swine, shellfish, and catfish. These animals, both carnivores and scavengers, are unclean. Paul addresses this fall in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Not only did death spread to all men, all creation was affected, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, beginning in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know 
that the whole creation groans until now with birth pangs. Well, according to science, there are two immutable laws of our universe, the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that energy and matter cannot be created or destroyed. Well, the Bible is in total agreement with science on this. Or perhaps I should say science is in total agreement with the Bible on this. God created everything and man cannot destroy it. God rested from creation and God cannot and man cannot create anything else. The second law of thermodynamics is also known as the law of entropy. Everything runs down to a minimum. Complex organisms devolve into simpler ones. Does not go the other way. Unless energy is put into something, it stops running. We must take in food or we'll die. Plants must have some light and water or they'll die. A watch needs to be wound or have its battery replaced or it will eventually stop. Simply put, every living thing dies. When Adam sinned, all of creation fell and it resulted in this inescapable law of our entire universe. There is nothing we can do to stop it or reverse it. But Yeshua can. And he will. This is why we need a savior. Doesn't matter how good we are, how perfect we could possibly live our life, we cannot escape death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. For he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation 21.4, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, and the former things will be passed away. In fact, we know that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.14. When Yeshua restores all things to its original state, death will be no more, and this includes the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. It will not exist. Back to Genesis 3, verse 20. And God called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. All men and women on this planet come from Adam and Eve. We're all brothers and sisters. Verse 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground which, from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed Cherovim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, I actually see this as a good thing. Had Adam had the ability to reach out his hand and take of the fruit of, the knowledge, the fruit of life, as he had the knowledge of good and evil, he would live forever. Adam would be here with us today 
sinning against God for all of eternity. So I can see the fact that we have the ability to, do, to die and then have Messiah Yeshua resurrect us where we will not sin against God. I see that as something positive. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. God didn't kill him. They actually lived long enough to have a child. Based on God's promise, it's possible that Adam and Eve thought that Cain would be the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. They said their seed. They don't know how far along in history this is going to take. In verse 2, she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Well, of course, if Cain didn't work out, there's always a second in line to bruise the head of the serpent, or at least the ancestor of the one who would. Continuing in verse 2. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Well, it appears that Cain and Abel are both adults and no longer with their parents. They're not there by the side of Adam as he's offering an offering. They are both independently offering offerings. One keeps sheep, one uh, grows uh, fruits and vegetables from the ground. They're not necessarily together. Well, why? Well, this is one of the areas that the scriptures are silence. We don't know what the details are here. And there are many, many opinions and theories on the topic. This one happens to be mine. My theory is that they were both married at this time. According to Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's the reason for leaving your parents. And I believe that's what Cain and Abel did. When they each had a wife, which isn't mentioned in the scriptures, they each then married and moved away. It's also possible that Adam and Eve had dozens of other children by now. The historical narrative of additional children is no more relevant to Yeshua and his ministry than the ten generations, chapter 5 of Genesis, from Adam to Noah. Either way, we just don't know. Genesis 4. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? Isn't he giving him a chance to confess his sin? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This removes him from being able to be in the line of the Messiah. He is now cursed like the ground and like the serpent.
Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Who might kill Cain? Remember, the only people mentioned in the scriptures are Adam and Eve. Of course, again, the Bible isn't an exhaustive history of mankind. It's about Yeshua and his ministry. Well, I'm sure a day didn't go by where Adam and Eve didn't regret disobeying the Lord's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I think it's unlikely that they would show contempt for the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply by only having two children in 130 years. Well, other than Adam and Eve, who else might want to kill Cain? possibly Abel's wife or one of Cain's brothers and sisters which at this point could number over a hundred remember Seth was a hundred and thirty years old when he was born and at the rate of one child a year just from Adam and Eve there could be over a hundred children who else would want to kill him well if Adam and Eve were continuing to have children at this time one of Cain's nieces or nephews may want to kill him, which could well be over 10,000 people at this time. It's not likely, but it's at least mathematically possible that that's true. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, just like the lands of Havilah, Cush, and Assyria, it's my opinion that the land of Nod was not inhabited. In fact, the only city in the land of Nod mentioned in the scriptures is the one that Cain built after he arrived there. Verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of it after his son, Enoch. Notice that the scriptures don't say Cain found a wife in the land of Nod. His wife merely conceived and bore Enoch in the land of Nod. Also, notice here the Hebrew word for his wife is Ishto, literally meaning his Isha. Remember, Adam called his wife Isha, woman, because she was taken from Ish, man. This would suggest at least to me that Cain's wife was a descendant of Adam because she was Isha, taken from man. Genesis 4.25 And Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son, named him Seth. For God, she said, appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. This phrase seems to be carefully crafted to make a point. And it, at least to me, seems reminiscent of the question that the Sadducees posed to Yeshua concerning the resurrection of the dead when they asked him, Master, Moses said that if a man die having no child, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed in his brother's stead. They're referring to Deuteronomy 25.5. Well, there's only one biblical, 
biblical occurrence where this took place, and it's in the story of Judah and Tamar, Genesis chapter 38. Remember, the Messiah was promised to come through Judah as it is written. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Well, after Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, his wife died. Tamar married Ur, Judah's Judas firstborn son. This meant she was in the line of the lineage of the Messiah. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. It was the duty of Onan to raise up seed for his brother, but he refused, and the Lord killed him. But it was still Tamar's right to be in the lineage of Judah because she had married his firstborn son. So Tamar covered her face and sat. Oh, anyway, uh, Judah tells Tamar, I have one more son, but he's too young to marry. Go back to your father's home. Put on uh, your widow's garment, and when Sheila is old enough, I will give him to you to marry. So she, when she finds out that Sheila becomes of age to marry, and Judas does not give her to Sheila to marry, because he's thinking, now my last son will wind up dying, he refuses to give Sheila to him. So Tamar covers her face and sits in an open place, which is on the way to Timnah, where Judah was headed. He saw her there and assumed she was a harlot and offered her a goat to lie with her. And as a pledge, he gives her his signet ring and his staff. Later, when it's discovered that she's with child, Judah demands that she be burned, and she says, hang on just a minute. The man whose child I'm carrying owns these, and she shows him his own staff and his signet ring. And Judah tells her, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. Judah understood he, through his lineage, the Messiah would come. And because Tamar had married his firstborn, it was her right to be in the lineage of the Messiah. And through Ur and Onan dying, that meant Sheila was left. And when Judah refused that, She, kind of like the story of Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Esau, where Jacob deceives his father into believing he's the firstborn. He makes him believe that he's uh, he's, uh, uh, um, Esau. He dresses up like Esau, deceives his father, and gets the birthright that rightfully belonged to him. uh, Tamar does something similar here. She deceives Judah into having a child with him because it was her right to have the firstborn son after the others had been killed. So it's possible, scriptures are completely silent on this, and this is just my conjecture, that Seth married Abel's widow because it was her right to be in the lineage of the one who would crush the head of the serpent, and she knew that. And as such, Seth was, quote, appointed as another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And that's why that sentence is crafted that way. Of course, I have no idea, and the Bible doesn't confirm or deny this. It's just my opinion. So back to Genesis 
chapter 4, verse 26. And as for Seth, he also had a son born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What's missing from this narrative? There's no mention of Seth's wife, even though we know we ha he had one. No doubt, she is not mentioned, but it's not relevant to the story of Messiah Yeshua and his ministry. This brings us once again to Genesis chapter 5, as we closed out the last chapter 4. Adam and his genealogy. Where Yeshua said, Truly there are many other things which are not written in the Bible, but these things that are written are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your Bible and everything that's in it. We thank you, Lord God, that what you have spoken and had your prophets write about point to Messiah Yeshua. It is our schoolmaster that leads us to Yeshua. They are the words of life, and they teach us about Yeshua and his ministry. The things that are not written in there, we thank you, Lord God, that, that we have a a wonderful time reading and imagining what things might have been, right or wrong in, in our conjecture, we know, Lord God, that, that the things that are written there are written so that we may know Yeshua and have life in his name. Again, Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. In Yeshua's name, amen.